Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70 celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. Hello and welcome to the Metrospective. I'm Ted Berg, joined as always in Zoom conference by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. And Tim, there is absolutely nothing doing on the Major League Baseball front as we speak Wednesday morning. Uh, nothing is going on. There are no games anymore, Ted. No more baseball. Yep. Uh, they canceled it. They just said, like, oh, season's over. Like, don't even worry about champions. That's not a thing. Uh, I think they did that back on October 4th, though. So uh, I think right. we've just been been living with that reality for the last month. A month in which nothing happens in baseball. I don't know if we're ready for it. I don't know if that's going to be a storyline at all this, this offseason. Does the Braves winning the World Series mean that the Mets are actually the third best team in the major leagues because the national the Braves proved the supremacy of the NL East? Uh, that is one way of looking at it, that the 77 and 85 Mets would have also been able to defeat uh, the what 95-win Brewers, 106-win Dodgers, and 98-win Astros. Uh, all, I mean, right. like the 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 Braves beat good teams, and they they didn't they didn't face elimination in any of those series, which is always impressive. I think uh, when you're the underdog, basically in all three, even though they had the home field against LA. Uh, but I, you know, I remember back in the summer, like talking to Mets executives before the trade deadline, and they were to me like weirdly confident about what they could do in the playoffs if they were to get there. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that confidence was. Uh, based off the same dynamic like the 2015 Mets had, which is they were not in the really good division. And the way the playoffs are set up is uh, if you're in the really good division, like the two best teams are in the same division, they've got to play each other before they play you. Uh, and the same, like the Giants and Dodgers had to play each other. Uh, if you were the Braves or the Brewers this year, you only had to beat one of them. You didn't have to beat both. Uh, and that was the case for the Mets uh, in 2015 when they didn't have to beat the Cardinals, Pirates, and Cubs. They only had to beat one of those teams, and they had home field for it. So uh, the, the same dynamic that existed for the Mets execs in, in the summer that was like, if we just win our division and get in, we feel pretty good about what we can do uh, is another reason the Atlanta was as uh, aggressive as it was, I would assume, that, that they felt kind of the same way. And uh, they paid that off uh, in, in a way that I don't think any of us expected. Yeah, I mean, I think it speaks to or or emphasizes a point you hear a lot and you also hear contested a lot, which is that, like, there's no accounting for what's going to happen in the postseason. It's it's more or less, and, and I believe this pretty firmly, like, it really is a crapshoot. When you have two really good baseball teams playing against each other, um, I always love citing the, the statistic from uh, mathematician Leonard Mulata now, who wrote an amazing book called uh, A Drunkard's Walk, which will really, like, honestly change the way you look at the world. Um, and he makes the point that to actually determine the better of two very good baseball teams you would need a 269-game series um, to, with, like, for mathematical certainty. Uh, and, like, obviously that's not going to happen, although I think it would be cool if they were just like, let's just call off the season and have the two best play- teams play each other every single night. Um, but uh, doubleheaders most of the time. Uh, you know, it, it's we've seen it, like, time and again. Uh, you saw it when the Royals beat the Mets in the World Series. Like, I don't think a lot of people thought the Royals were the were the best team in the world that year. Uh, you saw it when the Cardinals beat the Mets in 2006 and went on to win the World Series. Like, uh, so much of it is just 
know, how the how the ball bounces, so to speak, and then you know which team gets hot at exactly the right time. Yeah, I mean, you you look at Atlanta. I think one of the surprising things about their this playoff run is that it wasn't you know Freddie Freeman going nuts. It wasn't Ozzie Albie's playing awesomely through three rounds. Uh, it wasn't like Max Freed and Charlie Morton were throwing seven shutout innings time after time. You know, Freed pitched really well on Tuesday night. But, but aside from that, they didn't have uh, this series of great starts in the NLCS and World Series. Uh, like the, the people who led them were Eddie Rosario and Jorge Soler and Tyler Matzik and A.J. Minter. And like those, mm-hmm. those were guys that it's not like. It's not just that you wouldn't have said at the beginning of the season, those are the guys who are going to lead a team to a World Series. Uh, it's that at the beginning of October, you wouldn't have thought those guys are going to be the, the most critical guys uh, for a postseason run. I, like, I picked Atlanta to beat Milwaukee, but I thought they would lose to, to both the Dodgers and the Astros because their, middle, their, their relief core, I thought, was too soft. Like... Uh, soft, mm-hmm. soft has a connotation I don't mean there like was just wasn't good enough uh, that you know Will Smith wasn't a good enough closer he might he might lose a game for you late that uh, Matzik and Minter uh, and Luke Jackson couldn't keep doing what they had done in the L- LCS you know Jackson had the one game that that he blew in the LCS and I thought that's the kind of thing that might happen in the World Series and that would shift it you know that I think my bold prediction on our website was that Jordan Alvarez was going to win a game with a left on left hit because uh, I just expected him to come through against one of the, you know, Minter or Matzik or Smith in a big spot. And those guys, those relievers for Atlanta did it time after time in the playoffs. Uh, you're used to those guys getting tired by the end of the playoffs, and they didn't, it seemed. You know, you always go back to like Brandon Morrow in the 2017 World Series, uh, mm-hmm. pitching every day and then finally blowing up on the Dodgers in, in game five of that series. So, uh, that, that, you know, it's... In small samples, baseball can do weird things. I think that's a takeaway. I think this is the yeah. second to, the second 162 game season in a row where a team looked pretty dead in the water in the National League East and then won the World Series. Uh, and the the other takeaway is is kind of you know everyone that Atlanta added in that late July uh, splurge that they made on their outfield was you know they were similar type players. They were guys who weren't necessarily great at getting on base but they hit home runs. They slugged. Uh, and that is what the Mets were missing this past year is is the slug aspect of it. They need guys who hit for more power. Uh, and when you look at, at players on the whole, like, you know, it's, you really like guys who get on base. I think that's, that's how, that's how I feel about offensive players. That's how uh, a lot of uh, the money ball philosophy has felt about players for the last two decades. Uh, but at the current moment, Guys, you know, if, if you're looking at guys whose OPSs aren't that far apart and one is driven by getting on base and one is driven by hitting for extra bases, uh, I think you have to prefer the latter one uh, pretty significantly at this point. Well, that brings up a, uh, that's a that's a really nice segue to something you've been writing about quite a bit over the last few days, which is, you know, what type of, per, of free agents the Mets might pursue this offseason, a uh, really thorough look at the market uh, on The Athletic from you, um, and uh, in, in particular, uh, one guy who is decidedly a slugging heavy OPS guy, um, and someone we became quite familiar with this season in Javier Baez, is that power um, and that flash of better plate discipline that we saw in the final months of the season enough for the Mets to go all in on him? You know, I, I think... Uh, all in is a very vague term. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, five years and a hundred million. Let's say, do we think five yeah. years and a hundred million is about what he'll get? Uh, I think probably a, a little bit more than that, actually. Okay, um, but the market's know, think, flooded, flooded with shortstops. 
Yes, which which means he can fall through the cracks here. Uh, I think you know I looked at the the numbers uh, for a story on Tuesday uh, with with Baez, and I think what, one thing that was pretty clear was what was different about uh, you know him getting walks and looking more disciplined at the plate was probably more a reflection of how pitchers approached him than how he approached pitchers. That mm-hmm. uh, like he still swung at the same percentage of pitches outside the strike zone. He still swung he swung at more first pitches outside the strike zone than he did while with Chicago but that he saw a lot fewer pitches in the strike zone uh, with the Mets that uh, that was, it was, you know, six percentage points, which doesn't sound like a lot, but Hey, it's, it's just after election day. We know how much that means uh, six percentage points. So uh, that, that was a big shift in how he was attacked. And I don't know necessarily that, that, that you could thus take what he did in the last, last six weeks, really, after he came back from the, the injury, uh, and extrapolate it and say that's who he is now. I think it's probably more a blip, uh, and that in you know you're not going to expect a 350 on base percentage from Javi Baez uh, over the next five years. It's probably going to be right around 300 where it's been for you know between 300 and 310 where it's been for a lot of his career. Uh, but that you know he's going to hit for power. Uh, he's going to do do some exciting things on the bases. He's going to frustrate you occasionally on the bases, and certainly with his swing and miss tendencies and his strikeouts. Uh, but he's going to be a good defender. He's going to do some other things well. Uh, and I think, you know, you look at who the Mets might add on the infield uh, and Javi Baez does not cost them the number 14 pick in the draft. And everything mm-hmm. I've heard is that they're not really going to contemplate signing someone who's going to cost them the number 14 pick in the draft. Uh, so, you know, Javi Baez and Chris Bryant are the two high profile guys who can play the infield who wouldn't do that. And I think that's the conversation that the Mets will be having most of, of this winter is, is, Baez versus Bryant, and, you know, as a fan, you can say, why not both? That's what I'm saying. You know, it's because if you're looking at it as, uh, you know, Baez for the infield, Bryant can play third base or can play right field if you're not bringing back Michael Conforto. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you can, you can probably uh, justify to yourself if you are Steve Cohen uh, and you have uh, a lot of money uh, that that is the way to build this team is to... Uh, get those two guys as right-handed bats in your lineup, then fix your, your starting pitching staff, and then you've got uh, more of a shot going into 2022. Yeah, I think, you know, with Baez, I don't buy the plate discipline spike, like, even a little bit. Um, it's it's 13 bases on balls in his the course of his time with the Mets. It's not a huge sample. Um, the the OBP also driven a, a bit, in his case, in the, in the latter half of the season by, by hit-by-pitches. Uh, which is a sustainable thing. Um, like guys who get hit by pitches a lot tend to get hit by pitches a lot. He has not been a guy like that uh, throughout his career, and so I don't know that I would expect that to, to continue for him. I think that's probably a blip. Um, but I think you look at the whole package and you look at the year he had, um, including his somewhat uh, underwhelming portion of the season with the Cubs, uh, and you zoom out and it's a guy with an 813 OPS, uh, obviously slugging heavy like we discussed, uh, led, the, led the National League with 184 strikeouts, which is, which is frustrating, um, but hit 31 home runs and played great defense up the middle. And to me, uh, the, the, like, I feel... Like there are, you know, we, every time we discuss Baez, we talk about like his flaws and how he's not a perfect player and, and how he has this big hole in his game, which is the, the swing and the miss and the aggressiveness. But I think that there are probably so many players worse than Baez who we discuss um, just as, you know, good all around players. Like, and, and 
you look at the wins above replacement, like it was four and a half. That's a that's an all star player, you know, and and that includes his time with the Cubs. Um, I think I don't know. I just really enjoy, and I've always really enjoyed watching him play. Uh, I can handle, like I can handle the slumps, and I can handle the strikeouts for the defense and the power. And, you know, that extra little Javi Baez element he seems to bring to every game. Yeah, it's just, you know, his flaws as a player are easy to see. Like, it's, mm-hmm. you know, there are some players you need to watch every day to see, like, oh, like, he, you know, he's not a great base runner, this guy. Or he, he doesn't, you know, he, he, his range isn't as good as you want it to be. Or he doesn't have enough, you know, like, a guy not having enough power is not something you see in a single at-bat. It's something that, that you, you get over time. Um and Baez, like, when he swings at a pitch that's 12 feet outside the strike zone, uh, you're like, well, that's not something a good player would do. Um, it reminds me, to some extent, of, like, watching Giannis Antetokounmpo in the NBA, uh, where he's, like, the best player in the NBA, even though he can't shoot. Um, right. And you're watching, you're like, well, this guy can't shoot. How good can he be? And then you're you're picking apart his game the whole time, and then you look up, it's like, well, he had 40 points and 20 rebounds. He's probably pretty good. Right. Um, Baez yeah, I is think- not is not as good at, at baseball as, as Giannis is at basketball. But uh, I, I think uh, his flaws can sometimes, because they are as obvious as they are, become overstated. I think your concern, if you're the Mets and you're trying to sign him long-term, is, and I'd have to look more deeply into this, is how do those flaws in particular age? Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, I'd have to look up, like, you know, Chris Davis was a, a long-term signing uh, who similarly had, like, swing and miss in his game, and it went very poorly for him. But right. at a certain point, obviously, for the Orioles, uh, and uh, I'm not saying that would happen to Baez, but uh, like that's the fear when you sign a guy like that longer term is like, what happens if that flaw becomes too glaring and, and overrides what else he can do with the bat? If he's not making contact, he can't hit for power. Uh, and I'd have to, to look more closely at uh, like how do players with his profile uh, age as offensive players? I think the, the defense should age reasonably well i don't think he's going to become a, a, a really bad defender at any point and the, the speed and base running uh should should stick around for at least a little bit of his next contract because he's not too old yet uh it's weird saying that about someone who's like five or six years younger than myself um and uh i think you can feel pretty good about about how how he'll play for you for the next several years it's just a matter of how long that contract is and, and like you said there's a lot of shortstops out there maybe it doesn't need to be a six or seven year deal maybe you can keep it at at four or five, uh, which helps in that regard. Yeah, um, I mean, we'll have plenty of plenty of time to discuss Baez's free agency, I, I suppose, because it doesn't seem like the Mets are making any big moves soon on account of we are still awaiting um, word on who will be in charge. Now, some uh, new names have been tossed around on the rumor mill. Uh, Sig Medal and, and uh, Raquel Ferreira, uh, a couple of of uh, very well regarded, I think, front office names that that seem to be in the mix. But uh, one person who will not be running the Mets uh, next year was the person who went on the Mets this year, Zach Scott. Yeah, the the Mets made the decision this week uh, not to bring back Scott uh, in their front office next year. Uh, the timing of it is a little weird, you know. Obviously, if you're listening to the podcast, you know what's happened with Scott—that he was the acting general manager after Jared Porter was fired. Uh, that he was, you know, him and Sandy Alderson kind of ran the team for the first several months of the season. He, he was charged with the DUI at the end of August and has been on administrative leave since then. Uh, his 
his trial for the the DUI was set for uh, or is still set uh, for the the December eighth, I believe it is, uh, in New York, uh, and that the Mets had said they were going to kind of wait for that to resolve itself legally before making a decision on Scott, who was not really a part of their offseason planning, but had emerged as someone who you know, if things went a certain way with this executive search, kind of the way they're going, uh, might be an option for them to just kind of, you know, presuming uh, he he would be cleared of the most serious charges in his case, uh, could be a part of the front office and maybe a significant one, maybe back as the full-time general manager. Uh, but uh, for, uh, I'm still trying to figure out exactly why they made this decision now, why it's different, uh, whether uh, they were getting the sense that, uh, that Scott would not be cleared of the most serious charge or they, they felt more evidence in that regard or uh, if they thought he would not be able to, they, they didn't want, he was no longer in the running for them to be the GM and uh, they weren't sure about how the dynamic would work if they kind of bumped him back down to assistant general manager, the job he was initially hired for last year. Uh, I have to figure that out. Um, but for for any for, for one reason or another, he's he's not going to be with them next year, and that just gives them kind of another another person they need to hire because uh, the the front office has been in so much flux this past year. Where you know you the the plan was for Sandy Alderson to be on the business side of things, and you'd have a president of baseball ops, a general manager, some assistant general managers uh, on on the baseball side, uh, and you didn't hire a president of baseball ops. You fired the general manager. Uh, the assistant general manager you had became the acting general manager. He's gone now. So there's a, a lot of spaces they have to backfill. Uh, and uh, there's not a lot of continuity for the people who are here uh, from year to year over who's running the whole thing. Yeah. And, you know, there's been some like media hand wringing over the Mets letting Zach Scott walk. And to me, uh, while I like to defend some hand-wringing here and there, it feels like a, a sort of damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situation, uh, and and probably more damned-if-you-do-bring-him back, right? Because, like, one thing we've talked about a lot, you know, not in terms of on-the-field stuff, but this organization has shown, like, a, especially under Alderson, a, a pretty serious lack of accountability, and bringing back your GM who got a DUI after a, a team event, like, that. I'm sorry, if they if they announced, like, oh, Zach Scott will be back, I feel like that would have brought, like, even more fervent hand-wringing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to wait for the, the trial itself to figure out exactly what happened that night, because right. uh, I've, I've heard two sides of it. Uh, so, uh, I think not knowing, like, for, for them to make the decision now, I don't, I don't think there's many people... Uh, who think like if he is charged with a DUI that this is a, a bad decision to not bring him back? Um, but I, I think you know if he is cleared of the most serious charge uh, and you know pleads to something lesser than that, uh, then you can say, well, why did you? Why a month ago did you get rid of the guy if if he could have been fine in your your organization? Um, so I, I you know I, I need to find out exactly what happened uh, that that made them make this. You know they'd waited months on this yeah. two months. Uh, and then made the decision kind of abruptly on Monday night. Uh, so uh, try to get to the bottom of, of what happened there. Uh, and, you know, it just, there's a lot they need to hire in the front office. Uh, this adds to it. And one of the issues, I think, is that, you know, you've got to make the general manager meetings are next week in uh, Carlsbad, California. It, it seems likely at this point that Sandy Alderson is going to be the guy representing them as the general manager there. Uh, and you need to hire... Uh, a GM below him. Uh, you need to hire, you know, someone to 
do the job that Scott was hired for last year, which is kind of running player development. You need to make sure the people who are in player development, you know, work harmoniously with that person because Scott was was doing work in that regard before uh, the Porter stuff happened. Uh, and then you need to hire a manager and then you need to construct your roster. And on December midnight of December 1st into December 2nd, there might be a work stoppage, by the way. So it's just, it's, you know, whatever you think of November as being the normal offseason, which I think of as the time where Atlanta signs like four guys and no one else signs anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be a more, a, a more important, significant month uh, across the sport and in particular for the Mets this year. Yeah, I I think, you know, on Scott, like, I have no issue with the Mets cleaning house, so to speak, except that uh, clearly they're not fully doing that, right? Because Alderson is still the guy making or at least um, co-making a bunch of these decisions. And, uh, you know, if you're going to clean the house, you can't, like, you're not going to have a, a functioning home without some new furniture, to, to extend that metaphor. Yeah, and... and- I think, you know, you look at one of the route we've talked about, like executives being reticent to take the Mets job. And like even I, th- I think it's gone farther down the, the list than, than you or I expect or even most people who were pessimistic about the Mets uh, would have expected in that, you, you know, you're getting people who are kind of not even assistant GMs uh, who are like, nah, that, that job doesn't really interest me that much um, is probably this. uh you know, you don't know exactly how Steve Cohen is going to operate as an owner, but what you've seen is that he can be a little bit uh, quick to make changes um, mm-hmm. and to insert himself into things. Uh, and I, I wonder how, you know, I, I don't know exactly how uh, the Scott move will play in the industry, you know, how other executives will look at it if, this, if they'll be uh, surprised that they made that decision. Oh, uh, now I can't even like drink and drive. <laughs> Right. Uh, that, you know, there is like, like how, uh, how difficult is this guy going to be to work for? Uh, and uh, that's, that's, I think, an open question in the industry and one that that's manifested itself in uh, people's reluctance to be the next head of Mets baseball operations. Uh, well, for that next head of baseball operations, we have a, a good question from our friend Clay Davis, who is not really the... Uh, character from the wire but but tweets as him uh, he wants to know if you could sign only one of javier Baez or marcus stroman for the next say four or five years at relatively the same amount of money which seems reasonable right like uh, do we think stroman and Baez will wind up with somewhat similar contracts i think Baez's would be a little bit more uh mm-hmm. you know i i think i I have to look at what i i myself wrote with Baez. uh i think stroman i said about four for 80 million dollars uh, but it could be, you know, five for a hundred if you go up that way. Uh, maybe five for ninety-five. Whereas with buys, I think I said like five and one fifteen-ish. Um, okay, but that's so relatively it, the same. I mean, spread out over five ballpark, years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which would you choose? Uh, so I would probably, um, I would be thinking. Yeah, I said five and one twenty for buys. So, um, probably with that in mind, I think you go with the position player. Uh, I think you know the Mets. Uh, you might say pitching is their biggest need. Uh, actually, I don't know that I agree with the idea that pitching is their biggest need, um, even mm-hmm. with Stroman hitting free agency. Uh, like They were fourth in the National League in ERA last year, uh, and they were uh, 13th or 14th in runs. Um, their offense needs more help probably than their pitching staff does. I know there's a lot of uncertainty on the pitching side. They need to fill that out with depth and quantity. Uh, but I think that you need to make, if you're making one star-level acquisition, you need to do it on the offensive side of things. 
Um, and I think just in general, when you're looking at, uh, you know, Baez is going to be 29 next year and Strowman mm -hmm. is going to be, uh, is he 30 or 31 next year? Let me, everyone loves the parts of podcasts where people look up stuff while they're, uh, they you totally, no, you totally know. You're just recalling. We don't hear that. It's, it's, no one, it is. It is 31. You know, I, I thought it was 31, but I wasn't sure because he was supposed to hit free agency before his age 30 season, but he took a qualifying offer. So, you know, he's going to be two years older. Uh, so you factor that into how long the contract is. And pitchers, you know, they hit their 30s and they become less certain. You know, even guys who are durable, uh, like Stroman, who hasn't missed much time uh, in the last, you know, the, he missed a start in 2020 with the the calf injury and then opted out that's different from him missing it for injury reasons uh really hasn't missed time since 2018 for an injury uh and that's basically it since his torn acl in 2015 uh which was kind of a freak thing it's not like he's had serious arm issues to this point but even so that's not someone you say you give a five-year deal but you know his age 31 through 35 seasons and say well we feel good he's going to make 150 starts for us um you don't feel good about anyone at that age making 150 starts for you over five years. Uh, so, uh, in that sense, like I, you know, again, I think like sign both, um, if you're the Mets. Um, but, uh, if you have to choose just one, I would probably lean toward bias. Yeah. I think, uh, everything you said, I agree with, except it's like a, a little bit of a Sophie's choice for me because, uh, these are like my two favorite guys to watch on the Mets, at least at the end of the season. Stroman, I think was, to me, you know, even despite what DeGrom did in half a year, Stroman, I thought, was the MVP of the Mets this year and just such a a joy to watch. And I, I just kind of like his his persona in general. He's a Long Island guy, so I feel some some kinship there. Um, it, but yeah, like logically speaking, like this is why. This is why position players tend to get bigger, longer deals than pitchers, because betting long term on any pitcher is uh, is never the best bet. Um, Storm is interesting because he's he's an outlier in so many ways um, as a pitcher. Like I, I almost like I, I always wonder, like, you know, like who would be your successor to like the Mark Burleys of the world? Like these guys who can succeed and can give you 30 starts uh, deep, deep into their careers. And a guy like Stroman, who's like such a good athlete, um, we know keeps himself in, in impeccable shape and who, um, you know, isn't relying on the swing and miss for success, uh, who is so full of guile as a pitcher. Like that, that to me seems like, the type of thing that will hold up, especially since he, he has been, as you said, like so healthy through his career. Um, but yeah, like just, you know, in terms of the sheer baseball logic of it, like you, you go with the position player there. Um, but begrudgingly, because it would it would hurt to, to see Stroman walk. Yeah. And, it you know, it's uh, possible, too, that he becomes undervalued by the industry in the offseason because he is a sinker baller and, the you know, that that's not what teams are looking for necessarily. Like we've talked about with, you know, when Zach Wheeler hit free agency, you know, his career numbers were not really close to where uh, Marcus Stroman's are. Like his, you know, Wheeler's ERA plus, if I, if I remember correctly, was right around 100, like league mm -hmm. average for his career. And in the most recent season, where Stroman's is 116, it was 133 the most recent season. I really, you know, I would be surprised if Marcus Stroman signed a deal for as big as Zach Wheeler did because, uh, he's a different style of pitcher and it's not someone you, you know, if you kind of know what you're getting with Stroman, the, 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 
gap between the ceiling and the floor are is much narrower than it is with someone like Wheeler or, you know, per his competition this winter, someone like Kevin Gosman or Robbie Ray or Carlos Rodon. Those guys, when they're at their very best, the way they were for large stretches of 2021, are, are challenging for Cy Youngs because they're striking guys out, they're doing everything you want, uh, but then also have a much lower floor. Um, and I think, you know, we see this all the time, like the relief market guys would get paid on what their very best season might be. And you'd overlook all of these like middle relievers who are just going to try it out there and give you a three, eight ERA, which is valuable, uh, but are not going to get paid for it. Um, and Stroman kind of fits that, like, you, you know, you feel pretty good. He's going to give you like something between a three, three and a three, seven next year, maybe better than that. It was three Oh two this past year. Uh, and it was three twenty two in 2019. Like he, he's been a very good pitcher for most of his career. Uh, but you don't think like the chances of him throwing a two-two where he's striking out 250 guys is not there in the same way it is for some of those other pitchers, uh, and so I wonder if he slips through the cracks to the Mets' benefit that they're able to sign him for something less than he should make uh, in the open market. Yeah, I mean the the market itself will will I think have a role in that as you mentioned, like Kevin Gosman is is one of the most compelling free agent starters on on the market. He is not. Uh, Trevor Story tier, Carlos Correa tier, like the sh- to me the shortstops that are out there seem so much deeper. Like the the collection of shortstops is deeper and better than starting pitchers, and so maybe you know one team that's absolutely desperate for a starter uh, looks sees Stroman. I think there's a case to be made that Stroman is the best starting pitcher on the market, or one of them. Uh, not not in terms of immediate upside because there's there's some late thirties type guys, uh, Max Scherzer and. Uh, Clayton Kershaw, although I don't, I don't imagine he'll actually hit free agency. Um, just, I think Justin Verlander is a free agent, right? Uh, you know, there's, there's some of those guys you might get more upside with in the immediate, uh, in the immediate future. But for a long-term deal, there's no one who's like obviously better than than Stroman as a starting pitcher. And so I wonder how that'll affect uh, the market. Yeah, and th- that you know the the idea that he gives you. Uh, a pretty good base of innings on a regular basis that, you know, you feel good about him giving you 180 innings uh, just, you know, in a, at a time when you don't feel that good about very many pitchers in baseball giving you that, maybe that adds to his value that, that the industry uh, more so than in other years uh, values that reliability and that, that stability that a pitcher brings uh, and he gets paid more than, than you would think otherwise. Um, so I, I think that's a, both of these guys we're talking about Stroman and Baez, I think are really interesting free agent cases uh, because of kind of the uniqueness of their games, um, you might even say the uniqueness of their personalities and how they fit into a clubhouse, what they can bring to a roster uh, in that regard. Uh, so it's uh, I'm kind of fascinated by how this offseason is going to work overall because we don't know how <laughs> what the timing is going to be like. It's not going to be a normal offseason. Uh, I think if it were going to be a normal offseason, there's a lot of teams you'd feel comfort you'd feel confident saying we're going to spend a lot this winter. Uh, because it's not, I'm not sure what that number is. I think the Mets will be among them. Uh, you know, I think we'll, we'll hear a lot about the Mets competing with the Giants for guys. The Giants have some money to spend. They'll be in on on Chris Bryant, obviously. Uh, maybe in on Baez to an extent to play, uh, you know, if he's comfortable not playing shortstop there either. Uh, and they need to fill out their entire starting rotation behind Logan Webb. So uh, I think we'll hear a lot of New York-San Francisco competition for some free agents and maybe including for, for the two guys we're talking about. 
Yeah, and those who appreciate the uh, consistency and reliability of this podcast should know that we are transitioning into our full-blown off-season mode, which means we will likely, barring some major Mets news, not be around next week. I know you've got uh, some some travel on the horizon, and uh, you know we're not anticipating a ton of news immediately. So uh, we will be back, of course, at some point, but. Uh, probably not next week. Yeah, I'm going to the general manager's meetings next week in California, uh, which, you know, makes it difficult for us to record. When are, the you the Mets new, are you the Mets new GM? You know, they still haven't asked. Uh, I haven't withdrawn my name from consideration, though. So if they, if they want to talk to me about it, you know, learn an informal <laughs> setting. I don't know if it'd be a formal interview. Uh, all my suits are at the dry cleaner, so I'm not ready for that yet. Um, they're but- they're going to need my permission, I believe. <laughs> right, that's true. I I am under contract, so, um, and then we'll see. You know, I think maybe in two weeks we'll probably. I am guessing that by uh, November seventeenth, two weeks from now, the Mets might have someone in place. Uh, at which point, that would necessitate uh, uh, a podcast. But we're kind of in an as as events warrant schedule uh, for the next uh, next couple months, and hopefully there are events to warrant podcasts and that we're not sitting on our hands through a work stoppage in December or January. Yeah, I think if it gets bleak enough, we'll probably uh, we'll probably check in just to, uh, you know, I like talking to you, Tim. Oh, that's very sweet, Ted. <laughs> it's not apparently not reciprocated, but it is very sweet. <laughs> um, until then, Tim, peace out. Adios. Adios.